0: So my name is Heather Smart, and this is the breakout made to work. Dun, dun, dun. So while I was preparing to talk to you all about this topic, I did not live like I believed what I was going to say. So let me paint the picture for you. Every time I sat down to do my work, I scrolled through my phone. I took deep dives on Facebook. Suddenly, realizing that there was a number of high school classmates I had not checked up on in a while, I sent so many non-time sensitive text messages that I actually did a really good job staying on top of my text messages. Though that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. I was actually just diligently avoiding the work that I was supposed to be doing. And at its root, I was not acting like the work that I had to do was valuable. And I was not acting like the work I had to do was given to me by God. And do so you know how this made me feel? Utterly miserable. Right? The constant weight of my responsibilities hanging on my head. And I was just even regularly questioning my decision to do this at all. Should I have said yes to this opportunity? Can you relate to me? How do you feel about the work that you've chosen to do? And how do you feel about your work before you do it and when you're doing it? I think that when we don't understand what God says about work, that we're made to work, we don't live in the proper boundaries of work. So I'd love to propose to you that most of us don't understand that work is a gift. And that because of that, we misuse work and that we either overwork or we underlip work. And I really want us all to live, leave here believing that our work is valuable, it deserves our best, but that it doesn't define us. So to do that, we're going to look at three things. And they're on your outline on page 45, which is way in the back. And we're going to consider together how work is meant to be, how work is broken and how work is redeemed. So let me pray for us. God, please help us understand your good gift of work. Help us to live like work is a gift, to not overwork or underwork. Let us be changed by Jesus. In his name, amen. So let's look at our first point. There's some seats up here, there's a few seats. One seat, some seats. Our first point is how work is meant to be. So take a minute and think to yourself, when you think of God's original plan for work for the world, do you think that that plan included work? So when God created the world, it was a sinless place. There's no sin, no wrongdoing, until Adam and Eve, the first people that God created, ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. And I'm not sure how many days or even hours were in the garden before that happened, but what do you think about work in that setting? And to understand this, it's going to help us know how God's original design for work was. So we're going to look at the creation story and we're going to see three things that it teaches us about how work is meant to be. So you can see this in your um, scriptures on page 44. We're going to start right in Genesis 1. We're going to start where the Bible starts. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the very first verse of the Bible. There's a seat here and a seat there. There's two more seats if you want them. This is the very first verse of the Bible, the very beginning of God's story written to us about how we can know God. And what does God tell us about himself? He works, right? We see that God is the creator and creating is working. The God of the Bible, God of all the heavens and the earth. He's not like a man-made God, right? That others have conjured up, who sits up high laughing about the affairs of men, right? Just hanging out, causing some mischief, as suits himself in his boredom. That's not our God. The true God works. God himself. Work is of God. It's from God. It's excellent. It's delightful. Work is not an evil thing that came about when Eve listened to the serpent and took the first bite of the fruit. Work must be good because God himself works. One of God's characteristics is that he's good. A characteristic is something that we know to be true about God. And he is good. And he cannot act outside of himself. He can't act outside of his character. So everything that God does is good. Let's look at the scripture again. We're going to go to the beginning of Genesis chapter 2 and read just the first three verses. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God's work is not just a once and done thing. He works on creation until it's completed. But notice that he also rests, right, because... Work is not God's master. God is the master. So why does God work? He could literally do anything, right? He's God. He's above and before everything. He could have all of us doing all of his work for him. He could have had his angels out there, you know, planting shrubs, digging trenches, making animals. But God is the one who works. And, you know, as far as I can understand it, I think that it's because God knows that work is good and that it's a joy to him to work. It's pleasurable. And this truth doesn't end in the garden. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15:17. He says, "My Father is always working. Or, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working." God is continually working, and so is Jesus. Work is not evil. It's not a lesser reality. It existed before sin. It was and is done by the God of the universe. From the very first verse of the Bible, the very first story of who God tells us he is, we can see that God works. Work is made by God. Work is used for God. So what else do we need to know about how work was meant to be? And this is your 2nd subpoint. We need to understand the image of work. How was work meant to be viewed? What should we think about it as? Because God is good, and work is not a lesser reality. The work given to us is good. So we're going to read some more in Genesis 2, starting in verse 5. And we're just going to read some pieces here. And it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. Oh, no, I'm reading the wrong thing. I'm sorry. Okay, the text here is wrong. So just listen with your ears. Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was 5 through 9. Now we're going to read verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then we're going to read 18 to 20b. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So, reading this passage, the correct passage, we should notice the the gift of the garden that God gave the man. So God had just spent days creating this good thing. And in verse 8, it says, God planted this garden, right? It wasn't just like a wild, natural thing. God cultivated it. He planted it as a home for man, and he didn't just plant it with some nice shrubs or a few flowers. No, in this garden, in verse 9, it says that the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for sight and good for food. So consider for a moment the beauty of this garden. Think about what you would want to do in this garden. If it was me, I think I'd want to sit with a book in the sunshine and just be But is that why God gave the garden to man? Or maybe a better question is, is the garden the primary gift? No. Look at verse 15. That's actually in your packet. Mm -hmm. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So when I was a child, I was often gifted craft kits. And I loved them. And I truthfully still love a good craft. And you know, I was so happy to receive these gifts, but I didn't really understand them. I would open the present, I would treasure it, and then I would put it in my closet and save it for just the right time. Because I was afraid to waste it. And I was sad at the idea of using it up. I lost the point of the gift because a craft kit is meant to make crafts, right? I was not meant to just possess the kit. I was meant to use it to create something. The gift was the activity and the craft that it then made, not the box filled with things. God gifted Adam with the work of the garden and the fruit of the garden. The work itself is a gift and the fruit of the work is a gift. To just see the garden itself without the work and the fruit of the work as gifts, it's only to grasp a portion of the beauty of what God gave us. And, you know, God actually gave gifts to Adam that he could have done himself. God planted the garden. Why did he need Adam to tend it? And if you look back at verses 18 and 20, God gives Adam the job of naming the animals. Do you think that God actually needed help with that? God had already named a whole bunch of things, right? In the creation story in chapter 1, God names the day and the night and the sun and the moon, plants, water. These things didn't just come with names. God made them and God named them. So giving Adam the work of naming the animals was a gift from the Lord. It's a gift to work alongside God to be creative like God is creative, to bring honor to God by exalting what he's done. We get to participate in the glory and happiness of God that he gets when he works, when we work alongside of him. So for you, God has given you the gift of learning and the gift of practice for your future fields of study. The work of understanding difficult math concepts is a gift of writing very long papers, of doing research, of memorizing the bones in the body, those are all gifts. And it's not just because this work gives us purpose, and that we'll discuss that next, but it's because God has created the world and he created all these fields of study and he has put them all together that they work perfectly. God owns all of this information, all of it's his, and it's a gift to delve into the realities of how God made life here on earth. It's a gift to create alongside God, to illuminate the world he made through math proofs and creative writing assignments, through papers on the history of Mesopotamia and how it parallels with issues we see in the modern world, through nursing practicals and lab experiments. And this is only a tiny picture of all the work that you are doing in college, you have other places you work too, right? For your fellowship on campus, hosting Bible studies, for your part-time work in the dining commons, or manning the desk in the library, for your church, for your families. God is at work and he has given it to you too. All of our work is meant to be a gift. And as we look at how work is meant to be, we've seen that God works and we've seen the image of work and we're going to finally consider our last subpoint: the point of work. So this is subpoint three, the point of work. What is the point of work? Let's consider again chapter two of Genesis. When God created Adam, he gave him the garden to work, and therefore he gave him purpose for his days. And then when he created Eve, he also gave her purpose, the helper in the work. And I'm going to take a moment to pause here and be clear that because of everything we've just discussed about work so far, we should not understand helper here to be subservient. Why? Because Adam was not created to laze around the garden enjoying the sunsets and cool breezes while his helper made all of that possible. Adam was created and given the job of working and keeping, and Eve was made a partner in that work, a helper. The idea that work gives purpose, or makes life meaningful is crucial to understand. Because without this concept, I would assume that the entirety of your working life will be you waiting for retirement. You know, just doing the necessary evil of work, the thing that makes you money, the thing that makes you able to do the stuff you really want to do, until that glorious moment when you have reached the blessed age of 67 and gather your Social Security there's any money left in Social Security in 2071, which is when you, if you are a freshman here, will be eligible for Social Security. Work is not meant to tide you over until 2071. Work is meant to give every day of your life purpose and meaning. The purpose or the point of work is not to make money or provide for ourselves. that's a byproduct, that's a fruit. We need work itself. So I have three things, three thoughts, about how work gives our lives meaning and purpose. First, I would say that work is a way that we make ourselves useful to other people. And that's because our lives are not just about ourselves, right? How many of you here chose your major because you want to make an impact on the world for the better, right? Or because you want to help or care for people? And if that's true for you, even while you're studying, the work you're doing is an end game for benefiting other people. Learning the material to enable you to do the work to help others means that you're learning right now for the benefit of other people. And even if you picked your future job because you think it's a high-paying one, that can be done in a way that's useful for other people, too. I know people who worked really hard to get high-paying jobs so that they could give a lot of money to missions, and they do that. It wasn't just talk. Second, I would say that work is also a way we discover who we are. As you've worked throughout your life, haven't you learned more about what you like and what you don't like? Haven't you seen ways that you are different from other people or that your friends are different from you? Work is a way we describe ourselves, right? When you meet people on campus, one of the very first things that you discuss is your major because you learn something about each other. And if you're on leadership team and your fellowship or the worship team, or you help plan fun activities, all of that work is helping you discover who you are. And finally, I'd say that work is a way we know and serve God. One of the ways God has made us is to work, right? It's an intrinsic part of our creation. And as we saw in the first subpoint, God works. Work gives our lives meaning because we're acting in the image of the God who made us. And it helps us know him more as we act in that image. And then that gives God glory because we live in a way that he has said is right. So God gets great glory when we live in the boundaries that he created for us, when we submit to his good design and live in a way and live in the joy that it brings. The Westminster Catechism puts it this way. What is the chief end or goal of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our work brings us brings meaning because God created us to glorify him, and work is a means that he uses for us to do that. Work is meant to be meaningful, and not just because we're curing cancer or preventing wrongly imprisoned men from going to death row, though that would be awesome right but because even in the mundane the dishwashing the trench digging the butt wiping work we're saying this is the garden God has given me to work it and to keep it I will do well because he has given it to me I will choose to live in the boundary God has given me all glory to him as I do this I will do my best work because I'm meant to glorify God And this hard work will bring God glory. But don't confuse the idea that work gives life purpose or meaning with the idea that is the purpose or meaning of your life, right? Work gives your life purpose, but work is not the purpose of it. When we make work the purpose of our life, it becomes an idol, right? And that often leads to overworking. Tim Keller put it this way in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which is a great resource if you want to learn more about work. Work is not all there is to life. You will not have a meaningful life without work, but you cannot say that your work is the meaning of your life. If you make any work the purpose of your life, even if that work is church ministry, you create an idol that rivals God. Your relationship with God is the most important foundation for your life, and indeed it keeps all the other factors, work, friendship, and family, leisure, and pleasure, from becoming so important to you that they become addicting and distorted. So with that in mind, we're going to consider our second point, how work is broken. We want to believe that our work is valuable and deserves our best. But then it does not define us. And we just saw how our work is meant to be, right? So we're going to move on to our next point, and we're going to see how work is broken. And it should be very clear to you that work is broken, right? I illustrate this to myself every day and I'm sure you do too. When I was in college, here are some of the ways that I saw that work was broken. I forgot assignments I had to do. I was literally abandoned in group projects. I had professors use inappropriate films and content as required sources. My computer broke, I procrastinated, and sometimes I just got things wrong. As we consider how work is broken, We're going to first look at point A, the cause of work's brokenness. And I want to argue to you in this point that there's a general cause of work's brokenness, and that is sin. And that there are some personal ways that work is broken because we are sinful. We're broken by the fall. I'm going to talk about two of those personal ways. So to to do this, we're going to keep moving along in the creation story a little bit more, and we'll see the general cause of work's brokenness, sin, at the fall. And we're going to read the end of chapter 3. So in between what we just read in chapter 2 and here in chapter 3, Eve has been deceived by Satan, disguised as a serpent, to disobey God and eat the fruit that God commanded she not eat. And after she eats, Adam eats, and God comes to the garden to spend time with them, but they're afraid and they hide. Their sin has broken the perfect relationship that they had with God, and God must give them the consequences of their actions. So first he speaks to the serpent, then to Eve, and finally he says this to Adam. So chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground." For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Did you catch that in this passage, the main punishment Adam was facing because of his sin was that his work was broken? Adam, by occupation, was a gardener. And God says that the ground itself is cursed because of Adam. His main place of work, right? Instead of working in a beautiful garden, his new ground is gonna produce thorns and thistles. And now because sin has entered the world, we too will experience this effect on our work. If you happen to be a farmer or gardener, your work will probably be broken in a very similar way as Adam's. But I think that probably that's not true of most of you or any of you. Most of you have the occupation of student, at least most of the time. So how do we see this playing out in our ground? What are our thorns and thistles here? Maybe it's the ground of our minds, right? Do you ever feel like you just can't stick one more thing in there? It's just full to bursting or it's like feels like a dry wasteland. Sin has affected our brains. What are some other ways we see this? You know, our computers break and we, we can't understand our professors either because we literally can't understand the words coming out of their mouths or we can't understand the concepts that they're saying. Maybe the classes that we need to graduate are only offered in the fall, even though our advisor told us we could take it in the spring, right? And all of our professors seem to find, even outside of finals week, the same week in the semester to assign the biggest tests and papers. All these things are out of our control. This is your work broken. What about the thorns and thistles that we produce? Maybe you've experienced getting back papers filled with red marks, not a clear enough argument where are your sources check your spelling and grammar or you run experiments in the lab and the supplies have gone bad and then you run the experiment four times and you get four different results and you have a report due tomorrow these are all things that we have to wade through on our path to good results to go- good God glorifying work and please Understand me, I'm not trying to say that work is now sin, right? As we discussed in the first point, that is not true. Instead, work, like all parts of our existence here on earth, have been broken by sin. Now work, in the words of Genesis 3, is often toil. And just like work has been broken by the fall, so have we. And while there's this general brokenness we all experience, work has also personally broken us because we are broken. And this is the second cause of works brokenness, our own personal sin. So I told you that there's two personal ways we're gonna discuss that we're broken by the fall. And that's not all you could say about how we're broken by the fall in regards to our work. But I think that these are the two chief ways that college students in particular express this personal brokenness in regards to work, okay? First, that we overwork. Second, that we underwork. And it could be tempting for you to look at these and assign one to yourself. I'm an overworker. I'm an underworker. But I, I would assume that you lean towards one. But I think we probably do both of these things depending on the type of work God has given us on a particular day or hour. I know that I personally have done both of these things. So first, we overwork as we've seen, work is important. It's vital. It's something every person needs for happiness and purpose in life, but work is not everything, right? God gave us work as a way to glorify him, but when we overwork, we make work into something that it's not meant to be. We make it our God, and its outcome becomes our identity. The basic Christian word for this is making work an idol, and Martin Luther, a father of the faith, defined idolatry as looking to some created thing to give you what only God can give you. Work and its fruits, the results of our work, can easily become idols. We can see this in the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. If there was ever a story of people overworking, right? are you familiar with it? In Genesis 11, the people of the world come together to build a very tall tower that will reach into the heavens. Did anyone tell them to do this? No. They just decided to. In verse 4 it says, of Genesis 11, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I think there's a few ways that we can see them making work into an idol here. First, when they say, Let us build for ourselves the end of the work was to benefit themselves, right? They don't say, let's build for God. They want the tower for themselves. Second, they say, let let us make a name for ourselves. The goal of the work is their own glory, right? They don't work to give God glory. They don't work to make a name for God. Finally, they say, lest we be dispersed. They thought that their work would direct what God would do, right? Right? they don't want to be dispersed, they don't want to be spread out over the world, so they try to do something, they think their work can do something great and that it will be more powerful than God. Maybe we do this too, even thinking, my work has the power to change the future. Our idols tell us all sorts of lies. And work as an idol can tell us that the rewards of work are just for us. It will give us the glory, it will give us power So, what are some red flags that our working is actually overworking and idol-making? Here's a red flag. You work harder than everyone else in your class, striving to be the best, working extra long hours, more than you really need given your abilities. What are you looking for? Your own glory, maybe? You want to be the best to set the curve, and you don't want to share that glory with God. He didn't do the work. You did it. Here's another red flag. When you're in a group project, you take control and you do most of the work because you know only you can really do the best work. Here you could be after your own glory, rising above the rest of the group. You could be in charge of your future. You're unwilling to let other people get their fingers in there. Maybe one last red flag. When you don't get the top grade or you don't have time to complete an assignment, you think less of yourself. Maybe you're looking for your value in what you produce. Maybe you think that what you do says something about who you are fundamentally at your core. So how can you stop working or achieving? Think to yourselves for a minute. Where are you tempted to overwork? What are you trying to get from it? When we overwork, we shift from an idea of grateful stewardship Of our gift of work to making our work make us more valuable Uh, well let's think about what tim keller says in every good endeavor again he says if the point of work is to serve and exalt ourselves then our work inevitably becomes less about the work and more about us our aggressiveness will eventually become abuse our drive will become burnout and our self-sufficiency will become self-loathing but if the purpose of work is to serve and exalt something beyond ourselves then we actually have a better reason to deploy our talent, ambition, and entrepreneurial vigor. Entrepreneurial vigor, And we are more likely to be successful in the long run, even by the world's definition. So underwork, overworking is the first way that I see us being broken by the fall. And the second I see is that we underwork. Sometimes it's not our tendency to overwork, our tendency is to underwork and to believe that work is really just a pathway to rest. And I think that when we underwork, we think that work itself can't bring us freedom or happiness. Other things, fun, restful things, are meant to do that. And man, isn't college a time that really drives that interest? Because college is really full of life's pr- pleasures, right? There's so much freedom. And doesn't work just seem to get in the way of all that? True joy must be the freedom at the end of the day, or the middle of the day, or getting to sleep in. It's choosing to use your time however you want. After all, life isn't about working. Life is about living the way we want. Getting a happy life that's just going well, full of experiential pleasures. But God has given us boundaries to work in. He loves us, and he wants the best for us. Something that's better than just like a simple, happy life. And those boundaries he has, and in those boundaries, he has promised us rest. God himself rested after he worked. Look back at Genesis 2, too. After six full days of working and creating good things, God rests. Right? He stops for a full day. Or look at the Ten Commandments with me. I put the text of the Fourth Commandment in Exodus 20 in the packet for you to look at. God is very particular here. It's one of the longest of the Ten Commandments, and it's all about not working. He has set a boundary. God wants you to rest, you and you need to rest, but in proper proportion to our work. Our rest is meant to remind us of our dependence on God and to allow us to enjoy the creation and the fruits of our work. Rest is not the goal of work. So what are some red flags that maybe you struggle with underworking? Here's a red flag. You are consistently setting aside your work to the pursuit of other things. Maybe you believe the lie that your work is the least valuable thing you have to do right now, that your own pleasure is more important. Or maybe this red flag. Most of your work is done at the very last moment, gotten in just as midnight approaches. You could be living outside of the boundaries God has given you, and you take rest as your primary gift versus viewing your work as your primary gift. Or maybe this last red flag. You spend a lot more time at your work than your skill merits, and you don't have much to show for it. Perhaps you don't give your work your full energy or attention because, like you've mentioned, we've mentioned above, you feel like your work is preventing you from doing what's best. Therefore, it's hard to give it your all. I know I can struggle with that. If you struggle with loving and pursuing rest more than work, you're not alone. And let me urge you to consider the thing that the thing God, things God gives us are good. The work, rest balance God has decreed is a good boundary. Perhaps you could set aside one day that's free of your normal work and see how that boundary enables you to actually work hard on the other days. So what happens when we live in works brokenness, when we're overworkers or underworkers? This is point B, the result of works brokenness. I think that we become cheaters. First, I think that we cheat God. Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. All of our labor belongs to God. And all of our reward comes from God. Jesus is the one we're serving. And when we overwork or underwork, we're cheating him from the labor that he's due. Furthermore, he should be getting glory from us recognizing that God was the one who gave us our talents that we use to produce good work. We didn't make ourselves, right? Right? God made us and gave us the ability to work. I would encourage you, if you feel like this is true of you, to repent. To repent of the way that you've cheated God from his glory. And repent means to confess and ask God for forgiveness. Second, I think that we cheat others. And another word we could use here is steal, that we steal from others. Um, if we look at Ephesians 428, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor for honest work, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. If our work is meant to serve God and our neighbor, when we overwork or we underwork, we're only really after serving ourselves. And then we can end up cheating our neighbor out of the help or the service that we could be offering them. We could be cheating our employers or our professors out of our best work because we're striving after our own pleasures. Or we could cheat others by literally cheating, right? Feeling so much pressure to succeed that we steal another person's work that we might look better or have more free time. So, what do we do? As we plan our work for today or the future, we could ask ourselves, how? With my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of the greatest service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and of human need? I would consider, how have you been doing your work? Are you cheating on others through cheating? Would your professors approve of the means of which you find answers to your homework, to your online assignments, or to your tests? Do you use services like Chegg or study groups or even AI to advance yourselves, giving yourself more time to work extra hard at other things or just for merriment? I would really encourage you to choose to do good work. Don't take the easy way out, even if it means if you don't always have the answers or you don't have time to complete every assignment. It is more God-glorifying to live honorably than it is to reach academic success. Finally, I think that we cheat ourselves. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created for good works. And when we live outside of God's good boundaries for these good works, we cheat ourselves from the blessing that were promised. And God prepared those works for us to walk in. We cheat ourselves out of the opportunity of partnering with the God of the universe. And then we cheat ourselves from the true rest that comes from a job well done. So what should we do in this situation? I would ask you to consider that your work is God's calling for you. If you are doing it because you believe that it's the way that you can give God the most glory, that's God's calling on your life. Remind yourself that God is the designer, not you. And it might seem like cheating yourself to give up control, but God has designed the world to work just as it does with him in charge. So now that we've understood how sin has broken work, both generally and personally, we can move forward and see how work is being redeemed and how we can experience some of the satisfaction in work that God intended. So this is our last point, how work is redeemed. Our work needs to be redeemed because it's broken by sin. And to redeem something means to secure the recovery of something by payment of a price. Okay? So in this case, we are securing the recovery of God's original plan for work by the payment of his son's blood. So let's talk about this more. we're gonna see three ways that work is redeemed. First, we're gonna see that the worker has been redeemed. We're gonna see that our work is being redeemed, and we're gonna see that our work will be redeemed. So first, the worker has been redeemed. The beautiful news about all of these things that I've just shared is that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you, person who has been broken by the fall, you have been redeemed you yourself were recovered or released from sin by the payment of Jesus' blood. So look at what Romans 4, 4 through, this says 6, but it's actually 4 through 8, says to us. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justified the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one who, to whom God counts righteousness apart from, the, from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here Paul is talking about working to get right with God, working to be justified. That's what it means to be justified. So we stand before God, not on the basis of our righteousness or the basis of of even our good hard work. Those who have been redeemed haven't been redeemed by their own works. They rely on the work of another. Jesus. right? Jesus lived the perfect life, working in all of his situations just as he should, in all the boundaries God created, resting as he should, working as he should. Jesus did not overwork. Jesus did not underwork. And yet, he chose to die for the cost of all your imperfect work, for all your cheating, because only someone perfect could pay for the cost of your sins and my sins. He took our sins and he gave us his perfection. This can be your reality. A redeemed worker resting on the work of another, blessed as the man who God does not count his sin against. Even as we continue to work hard. And what this means for you, redeemed worker, is that you do not have to work to be right with God. Jesus did all of the hard work necessary to redeem you. We can be delivered from the idea that, you know, I must work, I must do good work so I can be right with God. We can rest. And we can turn to Jesus and rest, as he says in Matthew 11. 28 through 30. I have this in your packet. Jesus says, Come to me all who labor, all who work, all of us, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is true rest. This is true help for our work. Jesus gives us an easy and light burden. So not only have you, Christian, been redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice, gaining this easy and light burden, your work is being redeemed. So the worker has been redeemed, and our work is being redeemed. We have seen that our work is broken, right? But yet, even in that broken work, we still get to see God at work, and we still get to have some fruit. Even in Genesis 3, when God is punishing Adam, he says, thorns and thistles, I shall, it shall bring forth for you, meaning the ground, and you shall eat the plants of the field, right? Adam and Eve's work has thorns and thistles, but they're still eating from the plants of the field. They're still fruit. And our work is always going to be like this. It will be hard and difficult, but at the same time, we're going to catch glimpses of what work could be like, and we're gonna see that as a grace that God has given us, that we had to see any good glimpses of work at all. So when we're writing papers or understanding how the body works, or we're tutoring classmates and help helping them learn, maybe we're planning fun events for campus fellowship, we're wiping trays in the dining commons, we're testing the limits of our knowledge. And in all these things, we can revel in the way that God made the world, right? that we get to be a part of maintaining the world in the way that God wants it to run, that we're working for his glory. This is our work connecting to what God is doing all around us. We can live in light of this redemption. God is helping us even in the sinful world with broken work to see our work be able to be used by God. And these small glimpses only point us to the coming reality, that this is the last subpoint: that our work will be redeemed. Heaven is coming, and work will be put completely right when heaven is reunited with earth. Imagine your work perfectly done. A sentence with no grammatical confusion. The math proof that just makes sense. Science experiments with no broken equipment group partners who don't leave you waiting for them in the library. This will be our experience in heaven. Our work is only partially successful here. And you know, at its very best, right? But in heaven, it's all gonna be made right. Because in heaven, we're going to continue to work. That's what we were made for. Adam and Eve were working in the perfect world before sin entered. And we will continue to work in the perfect world after sin has been removed. At the end of Isaiah 65, when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, it says that we will build houses, we'll plant vineyards and eat the fruit, and that we won't labor in vain. Heaven is not floating on clouds, flying around like rope-winged angels, resting for eternity. Heaven is better than that. It's an eternity serving our Father and King, giving Him perfect praise and glory. Here, our work is always falling short, but it will not be so in heaven. In heaven, we will always be working in perfect peace, in perfect rest, full of joy and hope. It might be shocking to you to consider that work is not the bad thing in our lives, or that work is not meant to be everything in our lives. And I know that it can be really hard for me to live like those things aren't true. But you know, when I I actually sat down to do my work, really considering the things that I believed about the work I was doing, I lost the shame that was weighing me down. I still struggled to put my beliefs into practice quickly, but I knew why I was working and I knew how I wanted to work. I chose to believe the truth that my work was valuable because God gave it to me, and that I could succeed because Jesus already had, and that I could labor in the midst of the thorns and thistles with the hope of producing even a smidge of good work. Work is a good gift from God, meant as a venue for you to give him glory. And we can work hard knowing works value but also knowing our own value before the Father. Jesus has worked perfectly for you, so you can go and do good work. Thanks for coming.